You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel comic series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm continuing with the second of three Punisher storylines from the series with The Nom number 68, and I'm also taking a look at the rest of 1971, covering the fall and winter of that year, which is why you're hearing the Rod Stewart classic Maggie May a song that was the number one song in the country during the entire month of October of 71 as a double A-side with the song Reason to Believe. This was a song that actually was originally released as a B-side, with Reason to Believe being the A-side. However, DJs flipped the record and began gaining traction across the country, eventually hitting number one. The song's Wikipedia page has an interesting bit of history concerning the song, or at least the song's subject matter. Maggie May expresses the ambivalence and contradictory emotions of a 16-year-old boy involved with a relationship with an older woman, and was written from Stewart's own experience. In the January 2007 issue of Q Magazine, Stewart recalled, Maggie May was more or less a true story about the first woman I had sex with at the 1961 Beaulieu Jazz Festival. The woman's name was not Maggie May. Stewart claimed that the name was taken from the old Liverpoolian song about a prostitute. And by the way, here's what Wikipedia has to say about that folk song. As with most, most folk songs, the lyrics exist in many forms. The song specifies several real streets in Liverpool, notably Lime Street in the center of the city. In its most established version, uh, this song about this uh, folk song is sung in the first person by a sailor who has just come home to Liverpool from Sierra Leone. He has paid off for the trip. With his wages in his pockets, he sees Maggie cruising up and down the old canning place. She had a figure so divine, either like a frigate of the line or a voice so refined. He picks her up and she takes him home to her lodgings. When he awakes the following morning, she has taken all his money and even his clothes, insisting that they are in Kelly's locker, a pawn shop. When he fails to find his clothes in the pawn shop, he contacts the police. She is found guilty of theft and sentenced to transportation to Botany Bay. Well, the most famous version of the chorus contains the line, She'll never walk down Lime Street anymore. Stan Hugill, in his Shanties from the Seven Seas, writes that in different versions, several streets are named, referring to the different historical red light areas of Liverpool, including Paradise Street, Peter Street, and Park Lane. And just in case that sounds familiar, it should if you're a Beatles fan, because it's a track on their album, Let It Be. Oh, dirty Maggie May, yeah, I've taken her to 
heart of Liverpool Did it turn me to Two pounds and a week That was my pay But you're not here for Rod Stewart. You're not here for the Beatles. You are here for the Nom. So let's take a look at issue number 68, which according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics came out on March 31st, 1992 with a May 1992 cover date. The cover is by Jorge Zafino. It shows a shirtless Frank Castle confronting another soldier who I believe is also American and there's a crashed helicopter in the background. It's, well... I haven't been the biggest fan of Zafino's cover. The one for issue number 61, 69 is probably the best of the three, but I actually kind of wish that they'd gone with Andy Kubert and had him do something similar for what he did with the death of Joe Hallen, because those are really solid. This is kind of like a poor man's Frank Miller or Klaus Janssen. That's not a compliment either, especially considering some of the excellent and very solid cover work we've had throughout this series. So our story is called The Walking Dead. No, it's not that Walking Dead. This one's written by Chuck Dixon. Kevin Kabasik was the Pemmler. Jimmy Palmiati was the inker. Phil Felix was the letter and colorist. Don Daly was your editor. Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. We start back in our framing device, where our soldier from last issue is helping his wounded friend toward a chopper, and once they get him there, the wounded soldier asks to hear the rest of the story about Frank Castiglione, which we had started last issue and left off with Frank stumbling onto the bodies of two guys his patrol had escorted into the bush the day before. One of the other soldiers, who I believe is Lieutenant Maxwell, smacks him on the head with the butt of the rifle and then points the battle at him, explaining what's going on here. Basically, what they do is they sell some of the soldiers go-home tickets, or a desertion package, if you will. But instead of helping them get out of the war, they take him into the jungle and have him killed by sending them right to the VC. Castiglione smacks the rifle aside and then sends the knife, his knife right at the guy. Our narrator picks up in the action. The kids saw, saw James Coburn do this once in a movie. Coburn died in that movie. He wakes up with the feeling like his head's been run over by a truck, a cement truck with a full load. It's gotten dark. The kid's been lying here all day. Daryl was going to lie there forever. A lucky shot, but he was always good at throwing things. But he knew he couldn't stay put. He had to get back to the firebase Phoebe and out of the deep woods. One reason was that the little man was behind every bush, and he knew who the we was that Daryl kept talking about. His head was swimming. The edges of his sight kept blurring to black. Every heartbeat brought pain to the wound in his head. Lord knows how he even knew which way to walk, but something kept him humping that trail, and he'd just sleep wherever he dropped. He wasn't all by himself in the bush. Victor Charles was there and had lots of his buddies down from the north. They even had some armor with them. This wasn't about himself now. All those marines back at Phoebe were bait on the hook. This is a major offensive building. Get back to Phoebe or die trying. So he makes his way back there and they they see him. They almost shoot him, but they realize who he is. And we get we pick it up with, he could smell the chopper fuel and the stink of Cosmoline. He could hear the faint murmur of Marvin Gaye. He was home. A world of pain was waiting for him there. So they wake him up. He tells them that everybody's there. Everybody's, everybody's dead. Even Daryl, he saw him die. And... He tells him what's going on. He says, NVA regulars and Charlie, they're looking to move on Phoebe. He tells him, he says, a local hot at 5x5, five five. there's bad days ahead. The CO screams that he's 
crazy. He's delirious. I won't have you spreading garbage on my base. He says I, he needs to be quarantined. Sedate him, tie his butt down, but keep him quarantined. In other words, keep him out of my hair. Don't have him spreading rumors. And the narration picks up again with, the kid didn't want to believe it. Didn't want to believe what was going on. In the dark before dawn, the curtain went up on Charlie's big show. Mortar rounds of every size walked right across the perimeter and zeroed in on heavy targets. Victor Charles had just been playing up until till now. Those other mortar attacks were just practice. This was the big show. The little man was going for the prize. The kid from Brooklyn already knew the worst in his heart, but he had to see it for himself. The little man had thought this one out to the last detail. Sappers had laid pipe charges under the wire. They had the gun position sighted in with the heavy machine guns. Everyone had a mark. Everyone knew their lines. Through the wire and into the perimeter and onto center stage. This was Charlie's big show. This was Uncle Ho's big commie world tour. Every mother's son heart sang with the glories of the revolution. The little man was going to free the workers of the world and bury the capitalist slave mongers. His big brother from the West was making the world safe for democracy. Castiglione was on a more personal crusade. He wanted to know who his enemies were. He wanted to put a name to them. The CEO of the firebase, Phoebe, was Daryl's partner. There were thousands of greenbacks here. Every buck was paid by a guy who was too scared for the nom. Go home tickets for anybody with the cash. Home turned out to be just a ditch in the jungle. So there's fighting, the CO is, you know, you know, keep fighting, somebody got on the horn, um, you know, etc. And then uh, one of the guys spots something going on and, and he says, uh, you know, who is it? What's going on? This guy's got to be crazy. And he says, it's that new kid, the one that was Daryl. And you see uh, Frank using a machine gun, basically as a baseball bat, and smacking people aside. And the guy says, that muffer is the Lord's own Marine. That's when Makuta, who was the CO, knew. This jar had gone Asiatic. This kid was high more than gung-ho. It wasn't his country, his unit, or the sainted core his boy was fighting for. It was pure hatred, and Makuta could feel every drop of its acid. And uh, they, he shoots at him, and the, one of the guys yells, Hey, he's one of ours, and gets an elbow to the face for that. So Makuta's trying to kill Frank. He shoots at him again, and then, uh, then we get back to the narration. The kid from Brooklyn was going to get cheated. The little man with the tire tread sandals was going to steal his kill away. He should have been good enough for him. Makuta's death wasn't going to be a pretty one, but that wasn't enough. Makuta had to do more than just die. Dying was too clean for him. Dying was too easy. He had to be punished. So we see, uh, basically, Frank beat Makuta to death with his bare hands. Somebody got through to the air guys and a gunship looking for fun came to the rescue. This old spooky opened up with two electric cannons and caught Charlie in its cone of silence. Phoebe's honor was saved more than she ever did for herself. And our young hero from Brooklyn, the Italian kid who just wanted to be the pride of the Marine Corps, he fell asleep in the devil's lair and woke up in a whole new world of hurt. And then we see him being let off in a stretcher with an IV in him, and he's handcuffed to the stretcher, and they're saying, this is the one, this is the one, strangled the CO right in the middle of the air assault. Love to know that story. Might never know. Bad as this guy is racked up, I'd be surprised if he lives through this trip. And if he does make it and they do keep his raggedy butt alive, and he still has enough brain cells left in his head after all this, he goes before the man, and the man will hang him from the highest tree and wire his mama that he was a traitor. To be concluded in the nom. So when we hear the word punished, 
I had to groan. Because really, I mean, I love you, Chuck Dixon. And for all I know, you've been asked to do this. But come on, you're laying it on a little thick. And as I've said with other Punisher-based stories in the series, I'm glad that there is a framing device that is one soldier telling another soldier a war story. I go back to Tim O'Brien's How to Tell a True War Story and the things they carried because that is what about makes a story so worth hearing, and it's not so much accuracy as it is narrative. This is from um, page 71 of the things they carried. In any war story, but especially a true one, it's difficult to separate what happened from what seemed to happen. What seems to happen becomes its own happening and has to be told that way. The angles of visions are skewed. When a booby trap explodes, you close your eyes and duck and float yourself float outside yourself. When a guy dies like Kurt Lemon, you look away and then look back for a moment and then look away again. The pictures get jumbled. You tend to miss a lot. And then afterward, when you go to tell about it, there's always that surreal seemingness, which makes the story seem untrue, but which in fact represents the hard and exact truth as it seemed. In many cases, a true war story cannot be believed. If you believed it, be skeptical. It's a question of credibility. Often the crazy stuff is true and the normal stuff isn't because the normal stuff is necessary to make you believe the truly incredible craziness. In other cases, you can't even tell a true war story. Sometimes it's just beyond telling. And this is what I really makes the entire storyline worth reading to me because it's fantastical as much as it is reality. Um, and and this particular thing, you know, the story has Frank doing all these sort of super heroic things, swinging a rifle around and smacking people with it, grabbing two machine guns and taking out most of his enemies, followed by a brutal and beating to death and strangulation or punishment of Mikuta the CEO. And Kevin Kabasik's art has some '90s elements to it that serve that fantasy really, really well. I'm not exactly sure where they're going to do with the third part, but at least. It's interesting because it seems that Frank is taking care of the problem and now has to face consequences. I don't have much to say about it because, well, Frank gets his man and then it's over. So I guess we'll have to see. I'll probably have more to say about this when I hit the next episode because that'll be the conclusion. I can kind of go over the whole Punisher storyline here. So with that short review out of the way, I'll be back with a little bit of historical content, letters, and ads. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, the Carousel Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Armature Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Okay, 
starting with September and finishing in December. Here is the rest of 1971 from the History Place and Wikipedia. In September, Operation Surisac Montre 7-8 opens when the forces of the Royal Thai Army recapture several positions in the territory of Laos on the south bank of the Mekong in response to an encroaching Chinese presence to the north. September 22nd, Captain Ernest L. Medina is acquitted of all charges concerning the massacre of Vietnamese civilians at My Lai. On October 3rd, President Two of South Vietnam is re-elected, but it must be noted he was running unopposed. On October 9th, members of the 1st U.S. Air Cavalry Division refuse an assignment to go out patrol by expressing a desire not to go. This is one of a series of American ground troops engaging in combat refusal at the time. On October 25th, the United Nations General Assembly admits the People's Republic of China and expels the Republic of China, or what we know as Taiwan. On October 29th, you have uh, just a little more progress on the concept of Vietnamization, which was the whole process of turning the Vietnam War over to the South Vietnamese troops. The total number of American troops still in Vietnam drops to a record low of 196,700, which is the lowest troop complement since January of 1966. On Halloween night of 1971, the first Viet Cong POWs are released by Saigon, there are nearly 3,000 Viet Cong prisoners. Moving on to November 10th in Cambodia, Khmer Rouge forces attack Phnom Penh and its airport, killing 44, wounding at least 30, and damaging nine airplanes. On November 12th, Nixon sets February 1st, 1972 as the deadline for removal of another 45,000 American troops from Vietnam. November 23rd, the People's Republic of China takes the Republic of China, or Taiwan's seat, on the UN Security Council. The Cambodian Civil War continues into December, with Khmer Rouge on December 1st intensifying assaults on Cambodian government positions, forcing their retreat from Kong Pong Tmar and nearby Ba Re, 10 kilometers northeast of Phnom Penh. By the middle of December, on December 17th, U.S. troop levels have dropped to 156,800. And in the last week of December of, of 1971, the United States heavily bombs military installations in North Vietnam, citing violations of the agreements surrounding the 1968 bombing halt. Now, not... Related to the war, but still interesting, are two things. One, on November 8th of 1971, Led Zeppelin released their fourth studio album, Led Zeppelin IV, which would go on to sell 23 million copies. And on November 24th, during a severe storm over Washington State, a man calling himself Dan Cooper parachutes from the Northwest Orient Airlines plane he had just hijacked with $200,000 in ransom money and is never seen again. He would come to later be known as D.B. Cooper. This case remains the only unsolved skyjacking in history and probably has its own podcast somewhere as it is. So let's close this out with taking a look at letters and ads. We've got three letters here. First, you've got Lieutenant Corporal Ken Mazzarillo from Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. He says, I am a Marine and Gulf War vet. When I got back from Saudi, I had an enormous box of comics waiting for me to catch up on. Tonight, I read the Death of Joe Hallen storyline. The first issue struck a personal chord. 
I'm only 20. I don't remember anything about Vietnam. My only knowledge comes about from comic books, books, TVs, and movies, and stories from my folks' friends who were there. When I got home last spring, people shook my hand, bought me dinner, threw me parties, asked me to march in parades, the whole works. After reading issue number 54, I was filled with the emotions I can't even begin to describe. I realized for the first time how lucky I was and how much we owe to our Vietnam vets. And uh, Tim Tui says... The woefully inadequate reception given many non-vets and the guilt many Americans feel because of it helped make the Gulf vets' return radically different. Yes, there were a number of other factors which also played crucial roles. Length of the conflict, casualties suffered, territory taken, representation of the war in the media, the justification for the war, etc., but Nam helped pave the way for much of the public support of the Gulf troops, regardless of whether or not one supported the war. Thanks for writing, Ken. And to add, personally, from what I remember, granted I was all of 14, 13, 14 years old at the time, I do, that, that does fall in line with a lot of what, what I remember about, about the first Gulf War, um, where there was a more um, positive reception upon coming home. And I think there was even a parade in, in New York City. And the sense that... I don't want to use the phrase, all was forgiven or that there was a reconciliation going on with what, what had happened in, in the previous conflict and, and the way, the way people were treated. Um, uh, ARD, no, no name has been, uh, has other given from, from Brampton, Ontario says, what I would really like is a good story told from the point of view of a North Vietnamese soldier, not a story in which the North Vietnamese made out to be the stereotypical red menace, but just people. Okay. Mrs. Cara Vincenzo, who was a sergeant major, uh, the wife of uh, Sergeant Major Michael Vincenzo, Special Forces Green Beret, died in battle October 28, 1968, age 27, from Chatsworth, California. Ed, dear editor, by some quirk of fate, I happened to pick up a copy of the NAM yesterday, which is why I'm writing. I'm a Vietnam War widow. My husband, Green Beret, died at Khe Sanh in 1968 when he took a wrong step and blew himself up on a landmine. What I'm hoping for is that someone who experienced Nam will make take a moment to write to me to establish a correspondence, a friendship, because recently I find myself desperate in desperate need to talk about Nam and share experiences. You can bet that since 1968, most of my husband's buddies have either made new lives for themselves or are still sitting in VA hospitals somewhere, that is, those who made it back. Perhaps there is a Nam vet, some compassionate soul out there who will understand what I am trying to say and feel compelled to write to me. Please. God protect us from the Nam. Believe me, I know. Uh, there's no reply to that. All right. But we do have Nam notes and we do have a final editor's notes. The Nam notes, CO, commanding officer. Cone of silence refers to the firing radius of the spooky airship to, derives its name from the television program Get Smart. Montagnards, the indigenous hill tribes of Vietnam and VAs, the North Vietnamese Army. Sappers or saboteurs, spooky, the famous aircraft known for its formidable firepower. Victor Charles, of course, is the Viet Cong. They remind us to write them and they say, you know, so many of you write in to tell us or ask about books, both fiction and non, pertaining to the non, that, that starting this issue, we're going to run a recommended reading list. We'll kick it off with Homecoming by Bob Green. Bob's a nationally syndicated columnist who decided to explore the classic hippies spitting on servicemen in airports legend. Was it true or had it ever taken place? Was it a modern myth, along with alligators in the New York City sewers and exploding bodies and poodles and microwaves? <laughs> Green invited readers to write in with their responses. Homecoming is the result. First-person accounts by servicemen, in some cases their families, of their return 
to the world and their reflections on the accuracy of the myth and its meaning. I've never heard of that personally, but if I get a chance and I can track it down, maybe I'll read it and give my impression on a later episode. All right. Ads this month. Um, Terminator 2 is this is this is uh, this is a big T2 era. We've got T2 on NES and Game Boy. We have the classic shot of, of Arnold on the motorcycle. Uh, Uncanny X-Men trading cards. I remember how good these were. This is the one with Wolverine ripping through the pack of the trading cards. I think it's a Jim Lee Wolverine, but I really loved that that uh, that trading card set. The same classic Marvel Tees ad we've been seeing with the kind of all-over uh, T-shirts and stuff like that. Some really good ones. Uh, none of the ones there I had. Ooh, entertainment this month. Let's see. Celebrating Spidey's 30th anniversary with a 4x5 hologram covers and 3-page th- gatefold posters. Spectacular Spider-Man 1989, Web of Spidey number 90 are must-haves. Spawn, all new superhero series written and written and illustrated by Todd McFarlane. Hot Youngblood. Hot New Team of Mutant Heroes by Rob, Rob Liefeld. Valiant, this new line of full color superhero titles is Hot Marvel Card Series 3. Ooh. Recommended. The Infinity War, written by Jim Starlin with stunning art by Ron Lim. Infinity Wars. Uh you might want to copy edit this ETM takes place right after the Infinity Gauntlet. Now the threat is bigger than the heroes, including the X-Men. This multi-part saga will be hot. Recommended. So, yeah. Ooh, you could buy a box of Youngblood cards for $29.95. So hot it's burned the flesh from your hands. That smells really gross. There's the Marvel Master Vision 1-900 game. Call 1-900-420-6622 and play the Ultimate Marvel Trivia game. 395 flat fee. Call is three minutes. Callers under 18 must get parents' permission. There's a mural of a bunch of uh, that has uh, coordinates like a map. So there's PTW on one side and 123456 on the other uh, going across. So, how to play. Study the mural carefully. Call the number. We'll have a minute 40 to answer questions related to the mural. You'll answer all the questions by entering either numbers, initials, words, or coordinates on your touchtone phone. When the answer is a word, enter the, only the first letter of that word. Coordinates are entered number first, letter second, i.e. 2P. When locating a single item or character, enter the coordinates of the box which is it, in which it is predominantly found. Although the Silver Surfer, I guess that would be T6. Answer 10 or more questions to win. Have a pen ready to write down prize claim number. You can win a limited edition poster of the art shown, which is by Ron Lim and Terry Austin and Paul Mar- Mounts. Um, and, uh, then it doesn't see, I don't see what other prizes there possibly are. So interesting. I don't know if anybody, if anybody actually played this, get in touch with me. I'd like to see how you, uh, how you did. Um, there is an advertisement that's just basically call this number. You could win one of these 16 bit video games, streets of rage, super Castlevania four and populous. Interesting. It's, there's no graphics. It's just do this. Oh, it's like a survey. It sounds like a survey of who owns what in terms of video games and answering the questions. There's an ad for the Punisher Warzone comic. Stan's Soapbox this month and Bullpen Bulletins is all about how James Cameron's going to do the Spider-Man movie. 
and the X-Men is going to get a movie. This is right around the time where there were a lot of different things going on that Marvel was making movie promises that were never delivered upon. The Heroes Unlimited role-playing Megaverse line or the Robotech role-playing game. I really like the artwork on that Robotech role-playing game um, cover. It's really cool. There's a Nomad ad. You better watch out. He's coming for you. And if you're naughty, you're dead. Starting in March, monthly from Marvel, the big guns. Oh, we are in the 90s. And that's about it. The the cover, the back cover ad is, is a Game Genie ad that I think I've seen about a million times at this point. So that'll be it. Uh, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the last part of this Punisher Invade the Nam storyline, uh, as well as uh, some more look at some more historical context. Uh, and then after that, the next episode will be another movie. Uh, and then we'll get into the... Uh, the Don Lomax era of, of writing the noms. So uh, we'll, we'll see where that goes from there. Uh, as always, uh, feel free to leave feedback, send me an email or anything like that. Um, but until then, thanks for listening and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom.